0: Mormon Matters Podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation and is seeking to build financial support separate from Mormon Stories Podcast. All donations to Mormon Matters are fully tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonmatters.org. I appreciate everything here and I want to bring us a little bit to a close, but um, there were a few things left out that I thought we'd cover and things like that. So I wanted to make sure that any of you who might have either some research that you wanted to share, or if there was any leftover theories that you wanted to say, you know, that's not, proven by research or something like that let's do that first and then i kind of want to bring us home on a on a mormon note and and the listening audience and the position that we're in and and kind of talk with
1: you guys let's make sure that we talk about same-sex parents being perfectly adequate
2: yeah that was the one i wanted to to come to as
0: well oh okay well then who wants to lead out on that
1: okay so another you know when we're talking about myths and and kind of perceptions that Mormons deal with a big one is this idea of children being raised in same-sex households and that's been something that especially with the proclamation of the family has been a big issue that comes up that I see a lot as well but children deserve to be raised by both a father and a mother and and that's very much a stance that we take as Mormons and so i just want to kind of offer the same types of ideas and thoughts that we've been offering about all these other in a sense, myths that we're wanting to try to debunk. So about uh, five to nine million children are estimated to live in same-sex households, or at least where one parent is either lesbian or gay. And that's in the United States. And the reason why the numbers are so variable is because, again, of... Um, self-disclosure and who decides to be out or not. So that's that's a big part of why those numbers vary. But just to put that into perspective, even if we go with the 9 million number, for example, um, that's more children than there exists probably active members of the church, you know, overall, worldwide. <laughs> so, right. And that's just Absolutely. in the United States. So that's a lot of children that are living in situations that will be affected by some of the policies that have that have come out these last few weeks. And then in the 2000 census, about 600,000 same sex partner households were reported. So that was as of, you know, 16 years ago. So imagine there's, there's probably a lot more. Now, I'm a, an, I'm a marriage and family therapist. And so I'm very much um, in tune with what's happening with the Association for Marriage and Family Therapists, the American Association, AMFT. And they have come out with a position basically stating very clearly that they do not see any Uh, differences between same-sex or heterosexual marriages or households as far as how the children do. And where there are slight differences, it actually favors same-sex parents. So that's the position of AMFT and actually several other psychological associations there's been actually quite a bit of research on this i remember uh back when i was just starting my career that this was a big question as to whether or not amft would even um, address this issue there were several people who left amft at the time because they were wanting to research and come out with a position and again because of religious ideals or motivations i know of several people who left amft at that time um, and and even more who left when they came out with this position so um those those are some of the things that are out there as far as children being raised in same-sex marriages. They're doing just as fine as their counterparts.
3: One quick reference is look up uh, Columbia Law School review on same-sex parenting. It came out in October. Uh, the the uh, law professionals took a look at all of the uh, published literature on same-sex parenting for the last 30 years. So 19... 19- uh, 85 to 2015, they found 77 relevant papers. 73 ca- all came to the conclusion that same-sex parenting uh, ha- achieves the same outcomes as traditional heterosexual parenting. Four of them f- found some differences. Uh, the one that is uh, least reputable is the work of Mark Re- Uh, Regnerus at Texas uh, significantly flawed both uh, methodologically and in its conclusion. So uh, the Columbia Law people conclude overwhelming uh, academic support for the view that same-sex parenting is perfectly adequate.
2: And there was some collaboration from the University of Colorado, University of Oregon. So this was a pretty... um, extensive review of all of the studies that they could even find about that. And to even go on and comment about the Regnerus study, there's also the other studies that didn't find the, the equal outcomes that agreed with Regnerus were also equally flawed, and no one ever uses them because they were, so, they were just as bad as Regnerus. They tried to use Regnerus in the courts of law, as they were arguing same sex marriage cases, and they were just so patently demonstrably flawed that they were also thrown out by the judges. The university where Rigneros is disavowed that they, he has tenure, so they can't get rid of him, right? But they just they also stated that the The research was very badly done. There has also been a review of his data. His data actually doesn't support the claims he made. His data did not... He wasn't able to even get any... um, He only had two cases um, of all his research subjects that were actually raised by same-sex parents. So he didn't even have enough to make any sort of statistical claim. He was just... Basing his claims on any parent who had ever had a homosexual relationship and so he was dealing with basically broken homes he wasn't that's what he was telling us about he wasn't telling us about people who were actually raised by same sex parents, but he generalized his statements in ways that weren't supported at all by his data furthermore there's people who write in the same sort of you know conservative or religious think tanks who will go on and acknowledge that they'll say, Oh yeah, well that just shows what is really shows is that homosexual labor relationships are so unstable that we, they shouldn't be raising kids. And so they even admit by making that, by making that statement, they admit that the Regnerus claims were bogus. Um, and then, you know, but then they don't go on and support that they're, that the homosexual relationships really are unstable. And they, the studies haven't come out on that. But there's, as far as um, another study, the very biggest study that was more recent was a study that was done in Australia. And this was the very largest study that had the highest number of cases. And they just found actually a slight advantage for children of same-sex couples. You would expect there to be a slight advantage because of the hoops that parents have to jump through in order to become parents are so much higher. They don't have any mm-hmm. accidental um, pregnancies. They really have to be motivated. And so you would expect them to also be motivated parents, and that's turned out to be true. And um, So you would expect a slightly better outcome from a set of highly motivated parents, whether they're gay or straight. In this case, all gay parents are more likely to be highly motivated. But the point is is that there's just no evidence that they do worse, and in some um realms they do better. They find that um that in heterosexual marriages, the fathers typically spend way less time in their with their kids as the mothers, but in both same sex par- um, parents sets where they're male or female, both parents spend a, a similar amount of time as the straight mothers do. So their kids are actually getting more parental attention because they're getting uh, an equivalent amount from both their parents. So that would be another argument as to why it might even be argued that it's an advantage. I'm not going to go out and say, oh yeah, it's, it's a huge advantage. But there's certain advantages that sort of compensate for the disadvantages. And the disadvantage would be how society treats them. And But Given that there's an obvious disadvantage that they're mistreated by society, that they completely overcome this in all the outcome studies shows that they obviously have a compensating set of advantages and probably those are the ones I pointed out, the motivational factor and the the amount of time spent in parenting by both parents that tends to be higher with the same-sex couples. When it comes to Mormons' acceptance of studies, though, there is a problem with the basic Mormon community that they do like to cherry-pick which science they are willing to accept, and so they do jump immediately to this Regnerus study that everybody else overwhelmingly rejects. In fact, they also come up with silly arguments such as, well, they accept homosexuality in Amsterdam, and Amsterdam has a higher Rate of suicide, not among gay people, just in general. Therefore, acceptance of homosexuality must increase suicide, and this is a real argument that people make, right? In the um, in these, you know, people like at Fair who write about homosexuality.
0: It's a total post hoc ergo propter hoc. Uh, yeah, or it's yeah. just
2: cherry picking this one, you know, study that they can possibly grab that supports their idea, but they don't care. They don't really care because they don't, you know, Mormons just say the prophet has spoken and that's correct. And the only possible use we can have for a study is if it supports what the prophet said, and that's what they perceive they're going with in this. But it's problematic in this case because the the Prophets haven't been terribly consistent on what they say about this and that's good because they've changed in a good direction in general even though things seem kind of horrible this month but we have to acknowledge that the church has changed and they've changed in a really good way but one more thing I do want to add about the issue of same-sex parenting is that right now in the United States there are 100,000 children who are on a, who are in foster care because they can't find them adoptive homes. It's really clear that gay and lesbian parents, couples, have been more willing to take these children in. Um, And it's ridiculous to argue that they would be better off being bounced around from foster home to foster home. And when we talk foster homes, there's uh, some amazing foster parents out there, but they're under-supported. And there's a lot of foster parents who really are just doing it for the monthly stipend and the, there's a lot of children in foster care who are really exposed to some horrible things and they're moved often from foster care. There's no permanence. There's just really a, anyone who works in the foster care system knows that it's not good for a child to be in foster care if they have any chance in an adoptive family. And so if we're, you know, the idea of denying them a family because this family, you know, isn't the perfect, you know, one man, one woman family is really cruel to the children who might be deprived. I mean, this hopefully isn't happening anymore, but we saw a case in Utah where there was a child almost taken from family. This was going to rupture an important bonding time. They've had this child for months as an infant, and everybody knows that bonding is really important and that it would be highly traumatic to take the child from the home, even if it's for a month or two temporarily, sometimes that has to happen because of illness and stuff, but it's just not something you force upon a child. And here they were, this judge was going to do this horribly damaging thing to a baby um, because of his, you know, relying on this Regnera study. Cause that's, he said it was because of a, a scientific study and that's the only one he could possibly be talking about. Yeah. So, it's it's tragic that this ideology was getting in the way of what was good for the child. Hope that good news is is that the state of Utah and the Department of Social Services in rural Utah knows this. I mean, that's great that that they're you know they're um, the social workers working for the county there recognize that this is. Patently bad for this child, and so they spoke out and they advocated. And that's brilliant. That even in rural Utah, we have some social workers with a conscience who aren't just going to, you know, toe the party line, even if it's the commonly believed or commonly held by Mormon party line.
0: He was dismissed from
2: and case, the too. governor of Utah, and he right, yeah, yeah. we should support the law.
0: Thanks. Even
1: and let's just remember too that I mean the atrocities that happen to children and family systems. I mean the majority of that has happened through heterosexual couples. So let's please not forget right. that that's where child abuse comes from. Yeah,
2: right. I mean, and and the you know the most common perpetrators of child molestation are stepfathers. This is the this happens to be. You know, the demographic that is most likely to perpetrate sexual abuse on a child, male or female. And so, basically, you can make the argument that heterosexual marriage is, you know, yeah. the biggest cause of, you know, child sexual abuse. Because, in a way, it is. Because stepfathers happen to be the most likely perpetrators. Um, so, it's sort of ridiculous to to make this claim i'm not suggesting that there pe- women shouldn't remarry but i'm just saying we're we're you know we are blaming someone who shouldn't be blamed
0: it's awesome there's one last little piece of this that i you know i don't hear it very often but there's this whole idea that when you guys say they have just as good outcomes or even slightly better outcomes than heterosexual couple or children raised by heterosexual parents is there been any studies about how likely their children are to become gay because there's this uh, there's this whole idea that if you normalize it in the home by having two dads or two moms that child is more likely to choose that lifestyle or something is there anything in the data in that angle
2: All I know about is that there is a slightly higher rate of experimentation among those children in the studies that were done, which were likely done a decade ago. Now, you have to realize that in the decades since then, there's been some dramatic changes in how society accepts homosexuality, especially among young people. And with that, whether the church likes it or not, there's just been an exponential increase in the amount of people who identify themselves as having some amount of bisexuality. If you compare the statistics, it's interesting. In UK, it's just under 50%. So this crazy high number of people say they're not strictly heterosexual. And that's because in Britain, the stigma has is quite a bit lower than in the United States, but it's moving in that direction in the United States. So you could say that the children of, of same-sex parents a decade ago probably didn't feel the stigma. They felt a slightly higher percentage amount of freedom to explore their mildly bisexual side, right, that is actually fairly more common than we realize. But now I would suspect that that's disappeared. This is just guessing. I would guess that now that basically the entire society feels a little bit at ease to, you know, test the waters a little bit. And you have to realize that American youth are, you know, by the time they're 25, they – virtually all of them that aren't necessarily Mormons and a lot who are, you know, have become sexually active to some extent. So it's not – You know the difference is there slight. There might be a slightly broader experimentation with, um, you know, on the part of homosexual or heterosexual or vice versa for the for each of those groups. And of course, this is not wouldn't be considered a good thing by Mormons, but it might explain that statistic, which was there was a slight higher amount of experimentation, but not really a difference in the end point outcome and how many ended up in heterosexual marriages right, or how many exactly, claimed an adult yeah. orientation is gay or lesbian. Thank you.
0: Yeah, Natasha or Bill, anything on that? No.
1: Okay. Yeah, Natasha. I would just back that up in the sense that anytime you are in a space where exploration is allowed – and this is an issue with sexuality in general with Mormonism. I mean, I deal with sexual dysfunction in Mormonism across the spectrum, not just with LGBTQ populations. So um, there's a lot of issues that happen when you uh, expect people to really repress their sexuality and that it's only normative or healthy or righteous to sexually, uh, I guess, express yourself in certain ways, which in our culture is in a heterosexual marriage, you know, only after marriage. And um, so there's just a lot of issues that happen. I mean, in in some ways it can be protective for some people because they avoid uh, maybe some risk-taking that they would have taken in their adolescence or young adult lives. On the other hand, when you developmentally stunt people sexually, then there can be really repercussions within their marriages and, and things afterwards. So that's a really mixed bag of how um, effective our keeping of the law of chastity in the way that we currently keep it is. And, um, and then I would just say that I would agree with, with Daniel in the sense that when, when children are raised in homosexual households, there's going to be already a a safer uh, or more allowed idea of what you can or cannot do in your own exploration. And so then you see a lot of exploration happening kind of in late adolescence and, college years around orientation type of issues. And then people kind of settle into their um, more preferred ways Mm -hmm, as they, mm -hmm. as they, you know, get a little bit older Um, other than some of the things that they were talking about before that orientation can continue to shift as we age. But I'm just saying in general terms.
0: Awesome. You guys, I want to head towards a close, but I just want to ask if there's one more thing that any of you have, before I kind of close in this Mormon, you know, this time within Mormonism section. So anything left on biology or sociology or any
3: studies? Dan, the biology model predicts that the rate, the incidence of homosexuality in society at large and in the church in specific is going to stay the same. Okay. Because This is not a learned nor chosen thing and the The forces that create it are not subject to our manipulation.
0: Okay, so there's no, yeah, there's nothing we can do because it's biologically driven.
1: And changes that we see in who reports it is just because we're allowing more spaces for people to report having these feelings to begin with. It's not that this population is growing or that the gay agenda is helping everybody turn gay. So I would totally second what he's saying
0: awesome and then also when we do have somebody who through anecdotal things says that i changed like daniel said before mormonism hasn't up till now really allowed the option for bisexuality and those who would be in the middle of of one of those scales kinsey scale or any of the other ones right so so those those really or the existence
2: of gay youth
0: Right. Okay. Good. So those are all those are all great wrap-ups there. Um.
3: Dan, on that point about it's important to look very carefully at the nature of the change claims, and what we find is that people uh, cha- make a claim for changing in behavior. People claim that uh, they accept their homosexuality more than before. Some people make some claims for uh, somewhat decreased homosexual feelings or somewhat increased heterosexual feelings, but those claims do not permit the conclusion that you can change a gay person into a straight one.
1: Thank you. And I would add to that that people also lie because of the social pressures that they're facing. Thank
0: you very much, Natasha, on that, too. Can I bring us to a close by... um, I think all of us have a... You know, we've been profoundly affected. I'm definitely affected. That here we are in this Mormon moment. We're two to three weeks past this policy change. Shock is giving way to... This isn't going to change immediately in terms of the policy and, you know, we're not going to get a reverse and all that kind of stuff. I would love to know how each of you are, you know, choosing the path that you're on. Um, Daniel, in your case not probably heading towards activity in Mormonism, but yet, you know, urging people the way you're going to do it, and I'll let you talk about any of that. Natasha, with any changes with you, and then Bill, maybe I'll just ask you to bring up the, the rear with like, you know, what's in your heart and stuff as people say, well, don't you support the prophets or or things like that? So I just I just want to bring it home to the very personal lived Mormon experience. Daniel, would you start with this Mormon moment and what your hopes and dreams are for how to move forward?
2: Well, my hopes and dreams are that the church community will change things and that we don't have to keep losing lives. And, you know, that's going to happen in two ways. One one of them is happening already is that the Mormon people are – Are understanding and coming around and I'm just seeing it so much right and left. I see such amazing advocacy, such amazing allies in the Mormon community. Unfortunately it's not enough because there is still a lot of oppression for gay people within Mormonism. So we need to recruit more on a grassroots level there and we need more and more support. We also need the leaders to come around. Um, I'm afraid that's not going to come until the membership kind of gets there. That's kind of how it tends mm, to work. But works, I can't yeah, predict. Yeah. But whatever. I just want them to also, you know, direct from above, and then we'll get everybody on board. Because even if the most of the Mormon community comes around, there'll still be plenty of resistance until the leadership comes around. So I just want them to change. And even if they don't change anything about doctors or theologies they can address in a real way that takes into account the realities faced by our teens. But when it comes to the real life day-to-day, what can we do right now? It's we've got to reach these teens. We've got to reach the gay people and in the church. And the ones who are doing that are the ones who are in the church. You know, a lot of people leave. I left, so I'm one of them. Um... And I can't say that – I can't tell anyone to stay in the church if they just can't do it anymore, you know, if it's bad for them. But I have seen that there was uh, a lot of people who were saying this is a straw that broke the camel's back. I'm going to repeat what I said in my interview. If if this is the straw that broke the camel's back, I would like you to use that as a straw. (laughs) Put it underneath there as a stick to hold your back up longer because – what these gay youth need more than anything else right now, and the only ones who can get from them, is sympathetic voices in their ward. They may not reach out to you, but if you have spoken out, they will know who they can reach out to. But even if they don't, they, it will make a big difference knowing you're there. Furthermore, by having you present there, when the issue comes around, if you've spoken out, their parents are going to know who to turn there when they're confused and they're seeing that answers that the church offers aren't fitting for their kids. They're going to know who to go to much faster. It's going to make a big difference. It'll help those parents, but it might save the kid's life because they will see that there's an alternative narrative of how they can help their child in a less rejecting way. So my point is this, you know, this is where I'm going to do the missionary work. You know, stay in the church if you can, if you're on the fence, if you're finding enough value in it that it's not toxic for you to be there, um, but this is, but this issue is really uh, a sticking point for you, then this should be the issue that keeps you in the church, that doesn't take you out. Because the church... Um, doesn't listen to those who resign, maybe a thousand people left in protest. And, you know, that of course makes a statement, but, you know, I would much rather have a thousand people um, in a thousand wards um, talking about this issue and bringing it up and um, voicing their concern and making it so that other people aren't afraid to voice their concerns or other people aren't afraid to show concern and make, be a lifeline to these kids and to let the other youth in the ward know that they're okay if they're being generous, gracious towards their LGBT peers and helping to watch out for bullying going on around them and helping parents to deal with this issue in a way that's healthy and help guiding them to resources like the Family Acceptance Project and to the video project that um, I worked on, the LDSwalkwithyou.org project that um, really talks to parents about what loving their child looks like and what's healthy for them. So. I'm just speaking out to those of you and probably a larger percentage of your audiences might be in that position where they're contemplating and, you know, maybe you can't stay forever. I don't know. I just can't judge your situation. But if, but if this is really the issue that is, you know, breaking the camel's back, please stay, you're making a difference. You can make a difference. Um, and differences that'll save lives and this is the most i can do to is something i can't do because i can't be there so the only thing i can do is plead with those of you who can to try to fill that role in the in your warden's stakes even though it will come at the cost, it'll come at a social cost you know you will you'll face your own set of pressures and ostracism and whatnot from friends and family but it would be a valiant effort that will really, really make a difference for some real people.
0: Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much for everything you contributed tonight. Thank you. Natasha, where would you uh, focus in uh here you are in Mormonism right now.
1: So this kind of hits home for me in in several different arenas. I mean, personally and professionally. And I just want to be very clear that I consider myself very Mormon. I'm, I'm Mormon through and through, even though I don't come from pioneer stock, you know, my parents converted, but it's been, um, Mormonism has just been a huge part of my identity. And there's so many spiritual aspects about Mormonism that have really um, enhanced and enlightened my life. and, And I just very much stay within that paradigm. At the same time, I also want to be very clear and transparent that my family has not been attending church for about a year and a half now. Um, maybe not quite, but we're on what we're calling a sabbatical. And some of it has to do exactly with some of the topics that we're talking about. And that, um, uh, you know, as Daniel has very well stated, I have always been very willing to be part of that community where I advocate from within and I try to lovingly and non-threateningly implore people towards more loving stances and more uh, stances that have to do with grace at the same time, I have four children who also attend with us. And it came to the point where I have a daughter who uh, is very much, um, I guess, following in my footsteps in that she also believes very strongly in social justice and advocacy and uh, was involved with the Gay-Straight Alliance at her high school. And you know, she's quite vocal in in young women's and um, not inappropriately so, but Definitely bringing up concerns, and uh, that became a problem for her uh, to the point that she was released quite dramatically from um, a position in, in young women's and at that point, we had a very painful decision to make um, which i 'm going to try not to cry through <laughs> talking about but um, at some level, this issue has ruined Mormonism for my kids yeah. and when I have to decide whether or not to continue this idea of it's okay to attend spaces where we don't totally fit in and where we don't necessarily see eye to eye with everybody, which I think is a perfectly appropriate thing to do with your children. But to a certain point, because I also understood that where I take my child to worship is where she will develop her relationship with God. And that was becoming threatened and, um, And I just decided with my husband that that we would have to take a break for now. So it's a very painful decision um, because of what I said to begin with, that Mormonism is very dear to me and and it's my spiritual home. And I'm not um, really being able to raise my children in a safe Mormon environment. And that is just incredibly personally painful. From a professional standpoint, um, I really go back to... Caitlin Ryan's work through a family acceptance project and through SAMHSA's report, where to love somebody and to be loving, you do not need to change your doctrine. So even if we have not changed one opinion of yours or the person who's listening, uh, you can still be loving in your approaches to people who um, are LGBT, whether in your family system or in your ward family or in your community at large. And and I guess that's where I'm just so thoroughly pained by the general leadership in our church right now is that I do not see this approach as a loving one, even though I know they've tried to, to frame it as such. And I would just encourage families and loved ones to get accurate information, like, like some of what has been shared today, and to look up the reports that we'll link to, uh, to also increase the community support um, that they are allowing, especially for their teens. So whether that be through the school systems, the church systems, the community systems. And I agree with, with Daniel to stay as, as much as you possibly can. But when it comes to being a threatening place for your child, um, it, it's perfectly okay to, to no longer attend those, those spaces because if your church community cannot be a loving and supportive environment for your child, then, those numbers that are so scary about suicidal risk and depression risk and um, just uh, relational distress risk, all those numbers go up significantly. So please pay attention to that. And then I would just call out to, to ecclesiastical leaders and parents who are looking to help people in this situation as they refer to professionals to make sure that they're making sure that therapists and, and mental health um, clinicians that they 're going to or referring to are ones that would practice what we call affirming styled therapies and these would be um, models where exploration is encouraged and i don 't i don 't mean sexual behavior exploration that 's not even appropriate for some children and for some minors but i 'm talking about exploration of orientation and feelings and thoughts and Um, all of those kinds of things, a a safe environment and one where there's no predisposition to a result or goal that would measure success. If you have a therapist who would say, oh, no worries, I can change the kid's orientation or I can help the kid, you know, marry mixed faith, um, you know, in a mixed faith relationship or I can those that that's when I would say just run for the hills. That is not an appropriate approach to mental health and it's not what's recommended at this time Um, my last I guess call would be to our general leadership to stop seeking legal advice when dealing with these issues and to really start seeking good mental health advice uh, that's supported by much of the research that we've talked about tonight and there's much more out there and there's incredible resources in our country today that I believe the general leadership is not open to or um, asking for um, I guess, feedback on. And I just really think that that's paramount in moving forward in a way that would really be helpful to our community at large. And um, and to me, that's just that's just a call for repentance. And, and they've called on me for repentance for my entire life. And I think that applies to all of us. So um, repentance is a good thing. It's not a scary thing. So our church needs to go through that process right now. Thank
2: you. Yeah, thanks, Natasha. And can I just throw in on a footnote to that that i i really super respect you know that path you made and that decision you made and and you do have to take care of your family first and that is your first and primary obligation and and i just i i always say make my spiel about staying with the church and i really kind of I feel a little bit bad about it because I have some very, very close friends who are amazing activists who have left the church. And I just don't want this to come across at all as I'm shaming them or saying they should stay because that's where they can really make an action. I have friends who've left the church and who are doing amazing thing for LGBT people and, and even for LGBT Mormons from outside the church. So… Um, I really don't want anyone to interpret this as shaming people who take passes. So I'm glad um, Natasha, that you mentioned where you went with that to sort of balance out my plea. So thanks.
1: Sure. And there's, I mean, there's different ways to leave. Like for us and our family right now, we're considering it temporary and we're, we're leaving activity. I'm not leaving my beliefs. I'm not leaving my Mormonism. I'm not leaving my advocacy. Of course I have, um, venues that I had already created way before a year ago that helped me do that, like my blog and things of that nature. But I, I, I think that there's you can leave altogether, like the people who are resigning, and that's a perfectly appropriate choice at this time. At the same time, there's, there's people who can leave in kind of less dramatic ways or for temporary ways. And, and regardless of how we're dealing with our day-to-day activity with the church, we can all still advocate Yep.
0: Awesome. So Natasha, just I don't want to. I'm just going to ask a question here and and answer it or not. In this year and a half, have home teachers continued to come? Have your have your leader your ward leaders say we miss you? We want you back? Or has it been almost easier for them because you're now out of sight, out of mind? And is there some way that you're sort of trying to still be present as like? You know, there's possible repentance that you need to be doing because here's my family choosing this right now.
1: Um, no, there's been no reach out which um
0: means that you were too big a pain in the butt and they just want to get rid of you.
1: Well <laughs> I don't know. that's one interpretation. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And it's and it's very hard not to see it that way. Um Another interpretation is that maybe it's better to be left alone than to be disciplined. So maybe it's a loving way of shunning me. I don't know. I I can't speak for why there hasn't been um, a reach out of that sort. Um, Another interpretation is that they're just respecting our wishes to not be involved at this time. I mean, there's, you know, there's lots of ways, but knowing our culture and how uh, we usually very much go after the people who are inactive and of that sort. It, it is a little hard not to take it as that first interpretation, but I'm I'm trying to remain open to a variety of possibilities. Thank you,
0: Bill. Um, I don't want to put the burden on you, but you are the active guy, uh, the guy in the pews, along besides with me. Uh, for whatever reason, I think you and I have, at this point in our journeys, have figured out our own reasons for being continuing to connect and to affirm in some way you know that we're being led by leaders that generally get things right they're teachers of righteousness they're good people and things like that but i sense that both you and i would you know, I don't know if you want to put the, the, the word wrong behind it. They're, they're misguided. They're, this is a miss on their part. How is it that you find the courage to keep going? And as you interact with people who may look askance at you, how are you sharing your convictions?
3: Uh, well, I'll begin by saying that the last couple of weeks have been extremely disheartening in my home. Uh, I don't know that I can adequately express the level of anguish that I feel over the policy uh, statements. I guess I I just want to say I'm going to try to express what I think I can do now. And um, the biggest source of uncertainty is Um, I don't know how much more time I have and um, I would like to try to be to contribute in some positive way I will admit to to feeling discouraged that efforts at the real nature of homosexuality haven't made a difference or haven't made the kind of difference I had hoped might eventuate. I, I, I will continue to try to tell people what I know is the truth about the nature of sexual orientation and uh, provide accurate information and and try to urge people to investigate and do what's possible to correct Misinformation and misconceptions. I will try to speak up in the face of pressures to keep your mouth shut and not make waves. When people say things that are wrong, I think it's important for all of us to make corrections in the most loving uh, and non-confrontational way that we can. I think the ultimate target for understanding is the goodliness and godliness of LGBT individuals. I think that the lives led by committed monogamous same-sex couples is very exemplary, and whatever attitudes people have, whatever misconceptions they may continue to harbor, run uh, afoul of the example of goodness of gay people as employees, as citizens, as coach of little league ball teams, as in any setting. And finally, I would hope for a big increase in humility with respect to our understanding of what happens when life is over. I have hopes, fond hopes for what that might be for myself and my loved ones. But I think my genuine understanding of the details of that are at very best meager. I, in the face, of our extreme uncertainty about how <clears throat> about how things are going to be arranged and the possibilities of the life to come, I think we need to be non-judgmental. Except to judge that the here and now, the opportunities of this mortal existence, are extraordinary. And now is the time for us to open up to all of God's children all of the possibilities that we can think of so that individuals and families can move forward with whatever means are possible to greater goodness and greater lives of service and accomplishment. Thanks uh, to all of you for being part of the discussion tonight. I'm grateful for your association. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Dr. Bradshaw. Thank you.
2: And thanks for being such a pioneer within Mormonism on this. You you were a long-term example to so many and were a lone voice for so long. And so... You know, I just can't thank you for everything you've done over the years.
0: Yes, Bill, amazing. And uh, things live on. Our work lives on. And when we don't know the effects right now or it hasn't come as fast as we hoped or the change, uh, you know, I think all of a sudden things can shift. And uh, all this work is going to be well, well received. And we're so grateful for it now. And we'll be grateful for it in the future. So I hope you feel that. Hey, you guys, I am so grateful to you. Uh, this has been a true consecration of four plus hours uh, being with us and uh, being voices of love and compassion for this community. And I just I can't thank you enough.
1: Thank you for having us on. It's such an important topic.
2: Yeah. And thanks to the audience for for those of you who made it this far, I'm impressed <laughs> with anyone out there who oh, just awesome. listened awesome. to the whole thing.
0: Yeah. Listeners, thank you so much for hanging in there with us. I've gone ahead and let those guys uh, jump off the call after four hours and 20 minutes. But I just want to share a few things, if that's all right with you, who, who can stick around a little bit longer. It was a neat podcast for me in that I didn't speak a whole lot in it. I was mostly trying to be the person doing the questioning and kind of steering. But I was grateful to hear from everybody. But I wanted to, to share a couple of my own experiences, maybe to be that second person along with Bill, to talk a little bit about what I'm doing, what I think possibly done in a loving and a not completely threatening way. Uh, when it comes to interacting at church and things like that, when we find ourselves in a disagreement with this policy. My experiences the last couple of weeks of attending church have uh, been interesting. I'm decently well known within my ward for being a bit on the liberal end of things, and so I had quite a few people just come up to me and ask, how are you doing? And some did it with a smile knowing that i would be sad and and when it was those when it was appropriate i'd say yeah this has been a, a tough few weeks for me and uh others will just ask it who maybe weren't really aware of what was going on they'll ask me in a certain way uh just the typical how are you doing and i say well uh this isn't a good time to ask me this and and here's why and usually i can get either a at least an acknowledgement and a, a pat on the shoulder or an extra firm handshake or something and and still have them know that I've uh, I'm struggling with this. So what can we really do? I think the number one thing that we can do is be authentic with how we feel. We're a testimony-bearing church and often we think of testimonies as I testify that this is true, that is true, that is true. But we know that when we see and we experience somebody sharing their testimony, what we're really doing is we're experiencing them sharing their heart, sharing their spiritual experiences, sharing the way that they're putting the world together, usually with gratitude, sometimes with a struggle. And I know that our hearts are really always opened to that sort of sharing rather than just the pure, I know, I know, I know. So what I th- I think we can all do in the coming weeks for those of us who can find a way to want to attend re- attend our wards is to simply be vulnerable to share our pain to share our confusion to share our our real wrestle that we're in right now with how do we how do we honor these conflicting commandments, these conflicting principles of loving and sustaining the church leaders, while at the same time fully honoring the call to be compassionate and knowing what we know and the things that we've experienced with our own gay children or relatives or friends or co-workers from our personal experience, to know that what we know about these things not being a choice, that these are wonderful, upstanding people, and it's so painful for, for us to feel them and their children to be ostracized like this has really hurt our hearts. And I believe that what will happen is what always happens when someone's in pain is that we want to be supportive, and that's the response that we'll get. Now, of course, sometimes the response will be, let me help you, help fix you in this. And I've certainly uh, had people respond that way to me. And just through the years, I've learned to think of that as their way of sharing love. This is a worldview problem, and somehow or other saying the right thing or tweaking uh, the way I might be holding a principle will quickly solve it, and all the all the tumblers will fall back in place, and it'll be it'll be fine and smooth sailing for Dan Weatherspoon again. And that uh, that usually isn't the case, but I I can appreciate that as love from them. But one of the wonderful things about someone sharing with you in sort of that, well, here's what I think you should do kind of thing is it gives you an opportunity to offer back. Can I share with you in return some of the ways that I've added this up together and some of the things that are in my heart and why my feelings have gone in the direction they do? Would you mind listening to some of the evidences and some of the things that just don't add up for me. And I think that that can lead to good conversations and and a real sharing of hearts. One of the issues that didn't get spoken about as much as I'd hoped in this podcast was the idea of how do we share that we still do sustain our church leaders when we feel that they're wrong. There's no easy way to do it other than I think to, in our own way, in our own minds, think about these terms. We know how they kind of get translated into everyday Mormon speak and the quick, you know, uh, certified answers that are always safe to give. But as we look back at the history of the church and as we look back at really uh, many things that we have heard said by even church leaders, for instance, sustaining does not always mean being in agreement. To sustain is generally, the requirements are pretty minimal. It's that I recognize that these guys, I I honor them as having the keys to administer the church, to direct the ordinances, to... Uh, organize and to handle tithing funds and to do various things. And I I can sustain them as uh, having that duty, that call of God, and in general, just honoring that that is a role of theirs. And I can sustain them in taking that role and honor them and thank them for taking that. The other thing that we often, you know, seems to be the second thing that we're asked to sustain is to sustain the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve as prophets, seers, and revelators. And, you know, those are big words, and they're, they're big terms, but I think we're always benefiting also there by historical context, understanding the terms, understanding the things that we've even been taught by them about those roles, and... You know, so for instance, let's look at prophets, and let's look at the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Let's look at our own prophets. We have enough experience. It's not always emphasized the way that perhaps it should be, but of course you run that danger of overemphasizing it. But we know that these people are capable of getting things wrong. You can be called of God and still not have every thought that comes out of your mouth informed by the Holy Spirit, you're often influenced by things that you've just thought for a long period of time and haven't really questioned fresh. And so, for instance, we know that even the Church's essay on Race in the Priesthood talks about how the early prophets of the Church, towards the time when the policy about banning blacks from the priesthood and temple worship were getting started that they were heavily influenced by just the the culture around them the things that they'd grown up with the teachings in the air about curses of cain and various other stereotypes and things like that about about people with black african ancestry it isn't a clean thing to be a prophet. Your personality, your expectations, things that you've brought to that equation or that nexus that where you meet up with God and the Holy Spirit. One God part doesn't always just take over fully and let you know exactly. There's lots of different ways that we can confuse the good parts with something that we're trying to do and forget or not realize there's a subtle difference between p- other parts that aren't coming through. And so we feel generally good overall, and therefore we we move forward with that and, and share that out loud. But this this ability to sustain somebody as a prophet, seer, and revelator, we just need to remember that it is not a sustaining of perfection, but it is a sustaining of an idea that god is alive and well and has a hand in directing this church and that eventually we do seem to have a trend within our our church of moving towards justice compassion towards things that i think most of us would feel are god's will there are times along the way when we stumble we fall we're slow sometimes Sometimes we, as people, need to catch up before the leaders could share something with us. Sometimes they need to be given a break for true study and contemplation on their own and to ask fresh questions. But eventually, things can get done, and I can sustain them as prophets, seers, and revelators. And I think once we have that settled in our own hearts, then we we can probably be able to convey that to others if uh, if that's what they're questioning about us. I, th- I think that we all know that ability to still say, I love you, I sustain you, and your good heart. But I think you're wrong at this point, and I would love to continue the discussion with you. And just since we don't have access to them, I think it's perfectly fine to share with those around us that this is how we feel towards the Brethren. We hope that this discussion will continue, and we're going to continue on Facebook and our other associations and things like that. Be voices to continue a discussion, not in a way of of showing that we're anti-general authorities, that we're anti-anything, but that we have understandings that have led us to firmly hold the positions that we do about what is best for LGBTQ persons and their children. So I think that's that's one way that we can do that. Something that I've brought up, I'm sure, two or three times on the podcast over the last four years, and it, it has something to do with this ability to stay. We had some discussion with with Daniel and Natasha, especially about choosing to stay or not to stay. And again, I I honor every choice that they've made and that they are also um, saying, just know what's right for you. But for those who can feel that they stay without doing unnecessary harm to their children or that they aren't so... Upset by what happens at church that it ruins their week or things like that, and if they can they can come to church and and if you can come to church and enjoy the people for their goodness, not necessarily always uh, the agreement that you have with the things that they say and do. I I love this this example. It's from Joan Chittister, and she is a Catholic nun who is outspoken, and the context, I believe, of this little uh, image that she puts up was on women's questions within the Catholic Church. But I just like it in general. And she basically says the way she looks at things is this is a time of the seeding of the question. S-E-E-D-I-N-G. It's not necessarily the time when all the answers are clear, the way ahead hasn't completely shown itself or something, but it's important that we ask, and continue to stay in these questions. And she says, I don't know how long it will take before the clear direction reveals itself. I don't know how long it will take before the best option will present itself. But she says, "She like like the fact that she doesn't know how many snowflakes are sitting on a branch before their weight causes the branch to break, She says she wants to stay in and be one of those snowflakes. And that's been powerful for me, and that's part of the call that I feel I'm called to as well as I've been strengthened in having uh, the ability to do that. I want to share one more comment about this particular question and relate it a little bit to the situation of when blacks were denied access to the priesthood and temple. And it's always, you know, there's no two, no two situations are exactly alike, but there was a time when many, many Latter-day Saints felt, This policy is no longer sustainable. This policy doesn't feel right. My experience with my coworkers, with my neighbors, with friends, tells me with every fiber of my being that they are not less than, that they weren't fence sitters, that they don't carry a curse of Cain. And there were so many people who were feeling this and who, some chose to leave the church over this issue, saying, I can't give tacit assent to that policy that we have. But many, many began to pray and pray and pray for the change, for the change of the hearts of those around them, so that when and if the policy were to ever change, the church would be ready. They would pray for the brethren to be working on this, and unbeknownst to them, there was work going on behind the scenes. Even though, you know, even just a few months before the revelation in 1978, there was rhetoric and things like, this will never change, or, you know, somebody was restating positions that they'd held for 30 or 40 years when it was just a few months away from the other. There are things that are often going on behind the scenes that we're just not aware of. And so I tend to believe that, that there is questioning going on that there is a continued wrestle going on. And if I can invoke Gene England for a second, I I'm going off memory here versus being able to cite it for you right now. But when he when he talked a little bit about the Mormon cross being that question of blacks and the priesthood at the time, his his comment was something like this, the only way that we could that we will have failed is if we weren't among those who were doing this praying if we weren't the ones that were honoring what God told us to do, which is to knock and to seek and to ask and to plead and to do everything within our power. That's the only way that we can fail, or that was the only people that failed uh, during that period of time. And I'm not quite sure I've got that exactly right, but I think there's something to it that we can feel wonderful within our own hearts, within our own souls, As whatever faith we can muster, we're using it on our knees, in our contemplation, and with a good spirit in our interactions with others. One final thing, for those who've never listened to a Mormon Matters podcast, or perhaps this is your first time you've ever consciously chosen to explore on a question beyond what we've been raised with and taught. I want you to know that I recognize that those who are in these communities who listen often, we know how hard it is to have our worldview challenged a bit. And especially, we know how hard it is to fight that battle within ourselves, which says, you know, I need to honor prophets and yet we also know that God's called us to our own special relationship with, with him, with them, our heavenly parents. God always wants us to move from child, children of God to adults of God. And it's very difficult. And this may be one of those first times that you are feeling this difficulty. And I'm not going to say that it's an easy transition to make. I'm I'm well known for being in this podcast for sharing that it, it took me a good 10 years to make that transition. And again, it's a transition not in the sense that I no longer listen to prophets, that I no longer read scripture and things like that. But it's that transition into saying, it's that transition into looking with both eyes, both the eyes of my own spiritual connection and also recognizing what scripture is and what church leaders are and what their roles are and honoring that it's about running a large organization and and meeting most people where they are. They don't always take the time to acknowledge those who who may disagree with this action or something and yet we do have times when they've shared how we are still welcome. But even more I I'm I'm kind of blowing this part but even more than, you know, saying that it's difficult and that their support for taking a journey, you know, into trusting your own light sometimes when it's against exactly what's happening in the church today, I want you to know that as long and as difficult as it is, the Spirit does come, and it lets you know that you're on a good path. It doesn't make the difficulty go away. There's still work that needs to be done. We've got to dig in and and reorient and let in so much more than we ever did. So, for instance, this biological stuff that we are talking about today, we have to let in that things that we'd put our our faith in on the LGBTQ questions that these are perhaps not real answers, but we're basically going to be looking at that in all aspects of our life, including our Mormon life. And I want you to know that there's, you know, podcasts like mine. There's, there are many other podcasts. There's communities out here that can be of assistance to you as sources of empathy, sources of here's. Good resources if you want to read prophets on this if you want to read passages of scripture on this or something like that that can strengthen you along the way so in some ways I know it's a lonely path and it's a difficult path but I hope that you will also make it a path where you're continuing your spiritual disciplines you're continuing your church attendance you're continuing to serve in your wards and especially that you in your own connection with God are never, that you never let that go because you're going to need, you're going to need both eyes open. You can't just have it be a head game that you're doing, uh, a head process that you're doing. It has to be one with your spirit and your mind in, uh, in working on it together. So I apologize for anybody who says that this is unwanted in their life. I believe that you'll change your mind as you go a little bit further down this road. And, uh, I hope that we can be there and all the people who are there for you, uh, they'll come into your life and your path at the right time. Thanks again, everybody. I'm so grateful to do Mormon matters. I'm grateful for all of the youth who listen. I'm, I'm grateful for all of you who support the podcast with donations and with letters and with, comments and the various ways that you strengthen me and let me keep going on this it's a beautiful thing to feel partnered with you and i'll just close the podcast now with the traditional cue the music thank you for joining us today on mormon matters podcast to discuss this podcast with others Please check us out at mormonmatters.org To keep this podcast alive or to join our support community please consider a tax deductible donation today at mormonmatters.org Music for this podcast was brought to you by Brittany and Clayton Pixton The Mormon Matters logo was generously provided by studiocase.com Thank you for listening